ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. <laughs> hello again. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It. Yes. What I, I think you just said hello to the entire breadth and depth of our audience. Yeah, well, of, of humanity, I yeah, hope. Yeah, 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 that's actually everybody. All right, well, uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm Patrick. I'm here. I'm Dewey. I'm also here. In fact, we're both here. Both here in New York City. In the same room. Uh, on a, I'm, I'm, I have driven in for the day just to be here with you all yeah. uh, in the flesh. That's, that's right. Now, now, how is your, your show going? Uh, you know what? It's going, it's actually going really well. It's a, it's a neat piece of theater that, that is relatively new. It was written in the 90s and yeah. has a real like classic musical theater vibe to it. For people who may not know, it's Will Rogers Follies. Will Rogers Follies, right. uh, which sort of combines uh, the the Ziegfeld Follies, so big showgirl dancing numbers, big band sound, yeah. with Will Rogers, um, who is this fella back in the 20s, 30s, who at the time was the most famous person in the world because he was the most famous person in the United States when radio was invented, so yeah. he became the host of it, and uh, and had a column that he wrote every day that uh, everyone in the United States read. So he was a very famous person back in the day, but he was famous because uh, he said like folksy wisdom. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Like between him and Mark Twain, they kind of came up with like oh, these like these quips, these sayings of just life in yeah, general. Yeah, yeah. Just people... uh, is it, anyway. So it's this sort of uber polite guy. Juxtaposed, juxtaposed with uh, these like giant dancing girls wearing skimpy outfits. Big production numbers. Production yeah. numbers. But I, I think the reason that you, uh, the audience, may never have heard of the show is Will Rogers was famous also for his roping act. Yes. He did rope tricks. And, and there's a huge roping number in the show. Yeah. The, the, everyone ropes in some way, shape, or form, yes. including myself. Um, but in order to play Will Rogers effectively, you have to be—you have to not just know how to spin a rope like a rope. You trick, have to be a magician a with it. And you know, have to do some really yeah. cool tricks. Yeah. You have to be able to play the guitar really well. You have to be able to play a banjo, a harmonica, uh, do some tap. Oh my um, gosh! On top of like having this like real sage sort of folksy attitude, because there are these massive monologues. He's on stage by himself. For 15 minutes at a time sometimes, yeah. giving these monologues. Also, you have to be able to write jokes every day. There's a bit in the show where he reads the front page of the New York Times from that day, and he then tells jokes based on the front page that day. So basically, this role is like an octuplet threat of, yeah. of, of, of wit and wisdom and talent and singing and It, it really is. And, so it, it, wow. it's not done because in order to find that one human being, uh, it, it takes a real... <laughs> a real search party. Well, well, you know, this sounds like the perfect segue into why I will never make it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Come on, <laughs> spill it. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm going to get real, just for a second. I'm going to get a little deep. You never have before. I'd like I'd like for okay, you to finally it's, try. It's, it's a time. It's time. So, why I'll never make it is right now I'm going through a slump, mm. and that slump is that if I go back a year, like last year in July. I, I booked an audition I did then. Mm -hmm. And then in March, I did a video submission and booked that audition. So basically, in the last 11 months, I've booked two theater auditions. Okay. Two. And, and that's, that's a long time to go without, 
without the momentum, without, I mean, because, and, and that is, that feels like I'm not making it. It feels like I'm in this spell. Like, what is wrong with me? What have I done? And so that slump kind of affects motivation. It affects my drive to, well, why would I go for that? I'm just not going to, I'm not going to book this. I'm not going to, so yeah. it's, it's, it's tough to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Tough to keep that momentum going. Cause you're, the thing is in that description, you also just came back from a contract. Right. You're just about to go out on another contract. Right. Uh, to play like good, like really good roles in both shows too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I've, 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 you know, and I, I was working in the job last year uh, in Orlando and then I did Colorado. Now I'm going out to Pennsylvania. So yes, it keeps, but when I look back over the last 11 months, I've only booked two theater auditions. And so that feels, that feels very oh, disconcerting. Yeah. When, when I see friends of mine who, like literally, I had a break between Colorado and here, and a friend of mine squoes in a reading, a concert at a, a cabaret space here in town, and is doing Singing in the Rain. She's doing all that in this little month and a half whenever I'm just trying to audition. Yeah. Again, it just feels like feels like I'm not making it right now. <laughs> I'm, I'll segue off of that because I, my reason why I'll never make it, uh, I feel like we're still just touching the surface of why I'll never make it and the, and the myriad of reasons. Well, I, I think that that, that, was, that was the reason why we chose this title because there's, there's an infinite number of reasons why any of us, you and I, or the people listening. Yeah, so whatever episode number this is, uh, we've got room to grow. Um, always, always. For, for me uh, is FOMO. Hmm? FOMO. Oh, boy. Okay. Fear of missing out. Oh, yes. I have heard of this. Yes. I, uh, there was an opportunity that came up. I was pretty sure it was going to work out timing wise. Um, I, I'm, I'm at good speed now working on this show uh, th that I'm, it's awesome. It's a great job. I'm really excited to be there. Really happy to have it. But what happened was the, um, the other opportunity started and it started without me. Uh, so <laughs> it started with someone else. And so you won't be doing that. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the, the reason why I'll never make it is I wish that I had been told that that's how it would have gone because then I might have just burned it all and gone and done that other opportunity. Yeah. Just because I had done a little bit of one and I, and I need to do the next one. Uh, I'm out of the city for three and a half months and all I can think about are all of the things that are happening here while I'm not here, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing the job. I'm working, but all I can think about are all of the unpaid gigs, mm -hmm. all of the, all of the table readings, and on all of the, 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 the comedy shows, and all of the everything else that I'd be doing here. Yeah. If I was here in town, uh, that's all I think about. Um, well, we'll see because in the previous episode you had mentioned that you've never done this out of town I thing. You, yeah. You've been able to work either in a day job or doing theater. You've been able to stay here in New York, but for people like me, at least half, sixty, seventy percent of the time, I'm out of town, and then sometimes I get to work it. So for me, I know what it's like to be gone, and I feel that every time I go away. Like I was in Colorado for two and a half months. And all I could think about was, oh, missing that audition. Oh, I could have been doing that. Oh, why am I not that? So I totally understand. I will say, that this, there's a, 
a, a poor transition that I'm going to make. I, I have a head cold, by the way. I don't know if that's clear from the uh, particularly nasal sound coming <laughs> from my voice. It's normally nasal, but it's extra I, nasal. I just now. thought you were placing it higher to for the show. Yeah, it's, it's all about uh, uh, vocal health. And resonance, yes. Um, I, I want to go into why I'm still here. Let's do it. I'm understudying a role in Will Rogers' Follies. I'm understudying the the father, the father have, of Will? the father of Will Rogers. Okay, I, I, I it should be played by a man that's at least a little bit older than me. I'm not a young man, but I'm not an old man, and it, it should be played by someone say 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Uh, up there, um, it doesn't require quite as many uh, uh, skill sets as uh, Will <laughs> Rogers does. Yeah, and. The uh, the fellow who has been playing it for the past couple of months uh, had booked another job and, and was moving on, and they were replacing him with um, with another actor, which is that's a totally normal thing. And I have my role in the show already. Yeah. Really, I'm an understudy purely in case something crazy happens right before a show starts, that they have a way to do the show that night. Right. Not. Because I'm the right person for the job, <laughs> I can do the job, but I'm not the right. You're person basically for the job. You, you're there to fill a slot if needed, but otherwise they'll get someone else. Bingo. Yeah. So they they've brought in this other actor who I have so much esteem for. Um, he really is. He's one of my favorite people in this business, and he's one of my favorite actors in this business. His name is Bill Perry. Now we've been having understudy rehearsals just so that we're ready to go on in a moment's notice. Bill Perry showed up last week. His first scheduled performance is this coming Wednesday. Uh, I, I'm not the only person from my cast who uh, garnered this cold. And uh, the fellow who was playing uh, the father uh, previously uh, lost his voice. Complete laryngitis. Could not go on mm. in the performance yesterday, Sunday. But, of course, Bill Perry being this, like, the uber-professional, the greatest in, in the business – was like, of course, I'll go on, no problem. It, it is a, it's a show filled with bits, right? Little comic moments that, that as a character actor like I am, you make your own. I, in my rehearsals, had a couple of bits that I threw in. I'm three times the size and half the age of the fellow who was playing it before, so we had to do some things slightly differently. Right. Um, physically, we just could not do the same jokes. I was sure that I had bled dry all of the options, for some of these bits. Like I had, I, I tried a few different things in my, in my rehearsals. The Bill Perry comes out with his interpretation of a couple of these moments. And I genuinely like gut laughed at this brand new idea. Something these, yeah, that you had never thought of. I had never, ne- it had never occurred considered. to me. And I was both appalled at at my own lack of ability. Like, why didn't I think of that? And just <laughs> I it was incredible watching this guy work. Yesterday. I love that. I love that. Yeah, one of our previous guests, Michael Kostov, I did producers with him and it was the same thing. He did he did the same show every night, but there were little moments that he just made his own and yeah. he tweaked this comedy bit and that comedy bit and it was a joy to watch him just kind of work around certain bits, certain phrases, certain lines, and make it new every night. It, it, it's amazing to be with those kind of performers. Yeah, 100%. So 
I mean, that is a great reason to still be here. Mm-hmm. Mine deals with more, because you, you've dealt with more the ongoing run of a show. Mine is that first day. That first day when you start a new, new work, whether it's a reading, whether it's a full big production, whether it's a play, whether it's a musical, that first day when it's, it's still new, you're, you're kind of wondering who these people are. Because yeah. a lot of times you start a show, you don't know anyone there. Yeah, like no when, one. I, when I was in Colorado, I knew no one. I kind of sort of maybe remembered the director because he's the one who auditioned me. Yeah. But that had been seven months prior. Right. And we met for two minutes. So I barely remembered him, and I was like, oh, right, hi, how are you again? Good to see you. But no one else did I know. Right. But that first day when, especially, oh, this is what I really love. Whenever you get to sit down and do a table read of, of the show. Yeah. It, it's so rare these days to actually sit down with all the, the cast. They're there. We're in the same room. And we get to just start with Act One and read through the show. Well, it's the only time you'll ever hear the whole show. Because you're going to be on stage this is true. doing changes, doing other bits. Exactly. It's exactly. the only time that your whole cast gets to hear the production. Yeah. Yeah. Because once you're in rehearsal, either you're not there for that day or that, that scene. Or, like you said, once you're in show, you're not going to hear these bits. You're not going to hear these words yeah. or songs uh, the same way. And so that first day, whenever you get to meet everyone and you begin that journey, is, is a great reason to be here. Oh, I love that moment. We, we, did, we actually didn't get it. For Will Rogers' Follies. Now, how are you there for three and a half months? And you, th- this is what I don't get. Uh, Theaters have, oh, 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 we don't have time. Okay, look, the show's two hours. Most shows are two hours. You always have two hours to just sit and read. And, and, and then move on, yeah. you know, and then, then crank it out, go through your 10-day rehearsal or however long you have. But there's, you can always build in two hours to just sit down and read the play. I definitely me, missed I having it. it. I definitely missed having it. But to be fair, a lot of the show is dancing girls, which is tough to, to see in a read through. This is true. And then a lot of the other show is one guy reading monologues. Hey, hey. Um, but but it gives he's got to do it. So even when you go through those one person scenes, it's still great to just hear. It is. It's good I, for that person I, to just sit and read it without having to worry about oh where's my arm going and where am I walking to next. I understand the logic yeah. of not doing it. I did miss it. I'm I'm yeah. I'm with you on that. Well, I I understand. People don't think there's time for it, but I don't agree. Again, is it just me, or is it that there is time to do it, and theaters should do it? That's that. That's my thing. So getting into... Is it just me? So I'm going to go in a completely different direction, and I'm going to say, is it just me, or can my body not figure out this weather? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, wherever yeah. you're listening from, I don't know what is going on. But basically, here in New York, it went from winter to kind of like, oh, I don't know if it's going to be cold or I don't know what I want to do. Okay, summer. And it just went from cold and wearing a jacket to all of a sudden I'm hot. And then later in the day, it's cool. And then at night, I have to have the AC on because I'm sweating. And then it'll rain and it's cold again. So my body has no idea what to do. I'm uh, Look, I have a cold right now. Which for is probably a good reason for that cold. I, I'm a, by the way, this was mine for today. Uh, essentially, it, just a slight variation on this weather issue <laughs> is I, 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 can't, I can't prepare for a day in New York City. I can't uh-uh. uh, because... You, you, if I've got to go to an audition, 
then I've got to go like in some place to have lunch. Then I've got to go uh, out somewhere that evening. And it's, you know, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get home and back into the city. So I'm not going home at any point in time. No, no, no. You're just going to I've got to have this bag with me packed with, uh, again, it's, if it's a day like today where it just gets too hot yeah. in the middle of the day, I look, I'm sweating sitting here with you right now just because we <laughs> turned the fan off. I know we had to turn the fan off because we care about what you're listening to. To some degree, we do care to about some. what you're listening to, but uh, we have we're using our <laughs> voices, so we don't care that much. But I will say that this weather issue, someone needs to fix it. Now I know there are there are places where there are uh, volcanoes happening right now. Right. And, yeah. So weather is crazy in other places that New Mexico actual, is burning. Right. That have actual problems and catastrophes. We're just dealing with humidity and or rain. And or a cold day, but you know what? I'm yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid a slump, <laughs> and I can't avoid that slump if I show up just drenched in sweat to an audition or rain. Yeah, because you have or to, rain. Yeah, you basically have to bring a jacket in case it gets nippy. Because okay, here in New York, I don't know about where about you, but here in New York, sixty degrees could be muggy. And you're and you're like, oh, yeah. why is it so Six, hot? Why is, can sixty degrees or, be or, that? Or sixty degrees can be like, why does it need a jacket? Why is it so cold? And you're shivering. Yeah, everything's the worst. <laughs> All things are the absolute worst. But you know what isn't the worst? Our guest, our for guest today, today yes. Martin. Martin is coming up, and you, you know what? This is going to be different for us, and I'm actually really looking forward to this because we we bring on actors, directors, we bring people that are kind of in in the thick of of the production, and people that you and I, Dewey, yep. people that we deal with. That's on right. Daily. But Martin's kind of she's not necessarily behind the scenes, but she's a part of that backdrop that makes the production happen. So I, I, I can't wait to hear her Well, let's learn more about it. All let's right, bring her we, out. Here we go. Martine, are you with us? I am. Hello, Hello. Martine. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm so excited to have you uh, virtually in, in my living room. Yes. Um, uh, you now, you are actually calling us from uh, from where your location is. You're upstate, undisclosed. New York, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, it's, it's even far more complicated than that. Right now, I'm actually in Ashland, Oregon, working ooh. on a show at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Oh, okay, very nice. How exciting! Yeah. That's a beautiful place yeah. to be. Well, so yes, so yeah, so so the full name Martine. Key Green Rogers mm-hmm. is is the full yes, name. Yeah, you got it. There, there you go. And and so I, I was actually doing a little bit of research on you, you know, because oh, that's scary. Oh, 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 I, oh, believe me. And Google <laughs> found some interesting things. Uh-oh. But but what I, I found, bet it did. <laughs> what I found is that you hold a lot of positions. You're you're one busy lady. You you're a PhD, so we have to acknowledge that. So it's Doctor yes. Green Rogers, please. Um, it, it is true. <laughs> yes, you're you're a dramaturg. In fact, you are currently the president-elect of the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas. So you're that about to true. assume the presidency in a few weeks here. You're also currently the assistant professor at SUNY, which is the State University of New York in New Paltz. And you're a member of the American Theater in Higher Education. So that's just a small list, I think, of the things that you do. But... What is your main function that you do for, you know, to, to make a living? Oh, 
That's, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, I, we, we don't hold back. We, we get the tough questions out of the way first. Yeah, right? and please describe in detail exactly what that living is and where those right? expenses are. Thank you so much. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, I mean, I guess technically I earn my living by, I pay my bills by both being a professor at SUNY New Pulse, but then also freelancing as a dramaturg. So... That's how the bills. That's that's how the bills get paid. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good way. Just just so, uh, Martine, I, I I'm sure that you've listened to every episode uh, with rapt attention, um, <laughs> and so you're well aware of this. But just for our listeners, the kid that I was in Southern Missouri has an idea of what um, the 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 performance world, the theater world, is in general. You're either rich and famous, or you live in your car. And there is, and there is no in between. No, no, there's no in between. And and so I think essentially what what I think we like to do because we've we've spoken to actors on the show, we've spoken to writers, directors, uh, producers, folks that 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 help with like um, acting workshops, uh, sort of the full gamut. And so right. yeah, and so with you being a a dramaturg, now I have a basic understanding. I mean, I'm an actor. And so I have a basic understanding of what the dramaturg does. But in your experience, what is it that you bring to a production that you're working on? Ooh, that's a good question. Because I think, you know, in the end, it really depends on the dramaturg and also the collaborators the dramaturg is working with. You know, in the end, I would say generally what a dramaturg brings into a room is just a really uh, sort of... Uh, informed knowledge about the world of the play and the playwright and uh, the director's vision and, and tries to marry all of that um, in a way that isn't uh, like, looks more like a happy marriage that may borderline on, um, on like polygamy. Uh, just <laughs> okay. All the different people who are trying to be married. Right. Uh, right. But you know, one that lives in harmony in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Uh, I, I think in, Generally, in terms of me being a dramaturg, what I would probably specifically bring into the room is a plucky sense of we're going to get this done, come hell or high water. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, and I, I, because I, I uh, some of our listeners include occasionally my mother when she's she's uh, trapped into listening it uh, listening to an episode because I've well, I've well, shown her how to play it. No, our our family is our base. Yeah, I mean, they have to listen to uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I, can you can you be specific? So uh, uh, when you when you say that that you sort of marry uh, the script and the the playwright to to the production, like I I believe that you have done a tremendous amount of work to make Shakespeare more available, yes. more readable to today's audience. Uh, tech, yes and no. Uh, technically, what I'm working on right this second is The Book of Will by Lauren Gunderson, which is what I affectionately call a Shakespeare-adjacent play. Okay. So okay. about Shakespeare and about the world of Shakespeare, that's, but not actually Shakespeare. Um, but I'm also working on, with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, their Play On project. And the Play On project is uh, they commissioned uh, playwrights to, to, to essentially create modern language translations of Shakespeare and so in some ways that fits into the category of making Shakespeare more accessible to uh, contemporary audiences but I think really uh, getting back into this marrying of you know 
the script and a director's vision. I think one of my claims to fame in the world of dramaturgy is uh, Shakespeare done in really interesting locales or time changes. Mm. So, for example, uh, in 2014 at the Oregon Chaser Festival, I did a production of the Comedy of Errors that was set in the Harlem Renaissance. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. And so in a lot of ways, my job was to figure out how do we uh, manipulate uh, where and when we are in order to help make that work. So we started changing the names of places. Right. So all of a sudden people were in Louisiana as opposed to uh, where it was originally set and trying to figure out like what places actually fit in the whole timeline of, or space line continuum of, uh, of, of how the play works. And so part of it was figuring out where are two places that, because essentially because it was set in the Harlem Renaissance, we started talking about how we could use the great migration as the anchoring point of how, uh, this black family would move and potentially be separated. Uh, and so in the end, it was about figuring out what is actually a sea worthy or lake or river worthy path that people could be taking and to get from one place to the other that would then allow a shipwreck to happen and the potential for half the family to go in one direction and half the family to go in a, di- a completely different direction. So you start with uh, the, the bones of, of the piece itself, what, whatever, in, in this case, comedy of errors, and you try to basically give it a different shape than how it was presented hundreds of years ago. You try to bring it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You try to give it a, a basically the same bones, but a different body. And essentially, and so in case anyone was unclear uh, what a Ph.D. can lend a human being in their life, uh, like (laughs) that's an intense like uh, brain game to have to play, too. Yeah. Yeah. To to be truthful to to the to Will Shakespeare and and the work and the language, because it's it's, you know, very heightened language and to put it in a completely new and novel setting. Right. And I mean, not all dramaturgs do that. That's more of my claim to fame. Like those are the types of shows that I end up working on. So I did a measure for measure that was set in the 1970s in a Latinx barrio. Like, you know, just all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and is that mostly like you're asked to come in and do something different? Or do you meet with a director who says, I have this vision. How can we make this work? It's a little bit of both, to be honest, because I think what happens is uh, sometimes, you know, a director will say, I have this vision, and then I get called in because if someone's going to wrap their brain around something, a concept like that, they're like, Martine, you do it, because we know you do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, or sometimes what will happen is I'm already just on a production of something and then the director will come with this idea and then I will start helping them generate what that could potentially look like. Um, so a good example of that was numerous years ago when I was affectionately a baby Turk. Um, <laughs> I, I you like that. I know you like that. Yeah. You, you, sh- you just have to enunciate that Turk. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. That hard yeah. G. Right. Hard doesn't G. Doesn't sound like I'm a baby turd. <laughs> yeah. Because no one wants to be that. No, no one wants to be that. No one wants to be that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, in the end, I got asked to 
work with uh, the late Mark Rucker on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that was set in four different decades. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and, uh, and oh, you know, of course, maybe being, you know, the baby dramaturg that I was at the time, I probably should have just asked the, the, the fundamental question, why are we doing this? <laughs> but, of course, like, you know, at the time, I was just like, oh, that sounds cool. And so in the end, it was a quite an interesting affair because the, you know, if you think about the four groupings of the characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, yeah. you have your, what they ended up doing uh, or what he wanted to do was have the lovers set in the 1940s, the royals were the 1950s, the uh, the mechanicals were the 1960s, and then the uh, fairies were the 1970s. And so my, I had hmm. the most amazing and ridiculous job of doing things like trying to figure out a what are sort of the essentials of that time period so that we could uh, make sure that all of these characters all these groupings had things that anchored them in a particular time period so for example with our um, with our mechanicals they come out in a in a tricked out vw bus that course, when the door right? opens yeah. all of the smoke indicative of the time like rolls out Right, exactly. Things like that. Um, and, and and so does your work, it sounds like your work involves set design, involves costuming, involves uh, the other parts of the production. Yeah, by the way, if it involves kind of... casting, uh, Patrick and I are both available um, almost all the time. <laughs> uh, right, I just got through talking about how I've only booked two things in the last... 11 months so I'm i work ready. all the time i'm a very <laughs> successful actor but uh but you know i could make myself available if needed be yeah so so, so yeah it sounds like uh, that your hands are in every part of the production I, a lot of the times i am and especially since a lot of the places that i work do tend to have dramaturgs uh around at very formative moments of that of these types of conversations in order to have Someone whose eye and ear is in trying to think, you know, what, how does this, if we do something like this, how does the world work? What are the rules of this world? How does, um, you know, set design and custom design and all that stuff play into that? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because, like, it's a, that production, along with some other productions that I've worked on, that has prompted, I'm actually writing a book right now with a, a lighting designer collaborator of mine that'll probably be out in a year or so about the intersections of design and dramaturgy and how much they are kind of interwoven yeah. and talking about how important it is for, you know, essentially, you know, everyone to be committing acts of dramaturgy this, um, yeah, yeah, whenever it's true. they are thinking through these things. But then also, like, to have what is it like to, to sort of foster relationships between dramaturgs and designers. So I'm yeah, super excited like about it, that. Yeah, because it sounds like that the their work is really dependent upon the work that you as a dramaturg do. But but like you said, they're they're doing their own little bit of dramaturgy to support the director's vision, to support the world that they've created. I would say in some ways, like, my job is just to keep an eye on all of the things that are happening and making sure that we're telling the story we need to tell. Right, right. So, so, so watching so that, as all of these elements come together and exactly. say, so okay, no one drifts you know, off the any... beaten path. <laughs> Right, exactly. And if it has, you know, if someone has, in some ways, my job is not necessarily to reel it in, but to say, okay, does this work? Does it still tell the story we need to tell? And if it does, then great. And if it doesn't, then, you know, we, we need to rethink it a little Re bit. Readjust, yeah. So uh, I, I want to take us back 
just a little bit. Here we because go. Because this is this is a different walk in life than the one that I took. Uh, I I did go to the great University of Missouri um, to get my degree in theater, and uh, they actually have a dramaturgy program there. Um, I I don't know that there are that many of them out there, but they they sort of built a a doctoral program there. How how did you get into this line of work? What what took you down this path? You know, I I, I it think sounds we, like you're trying to say, why are you doing this? No, I, <laughs> right. I think what you do is is look. I think what we all do in the theater is uber valuable. Yes. Uh, to for for our culture and for society, and I deeply love theater, and I love uh, what dramaturgs do. What led you here? Where, where are you from? What's what's your deal? Who are you, Martine? Yeah. In in your in the very depths of your soul. <laughs> Let's let's hear it out. I hope you have a tissue box nearby. We have one right next to us. Let's uh, do this. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, to be honest, I think this the story is definitely pretty happy. So you won't need the tissue box unless you're having allergy problems right now. I am. No, I uh, have a cold, so yeah, that's he has why a cold, it's here. So he's oh, ready. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so essentially, I have been doing theater pretty much my entire life, and I'm not kidding when I say that. And, you know, my grandmother thought I had way too much energy and not a constructive place to put it. So when I was <laughs> six, she enrolled me in the children's theater Smart. program that I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. And there's this group called the Hurrah Players, which actually still exists. Um, Hurrah! But, right. And so I started doing that. And basically, I just kept doing theater. It, but I discovered dramaturgy during uh, my junior year of undergrad. I went into school a biochemistry and uh, and theater major at Virginia Wesleyan. As you do. And, I mean, that's the... Yeah, I, right? I mean, my right? best friend, that's right? his double major. Biochem- <laughs> it was. My best friend is biochemistry and theater. Wait, I'd say I was kind of joking. You mean that's a thing? Biochemistry yeah. and theater. Yeah. See, I didn't know that was a thing. Well, no, one is yours yeah. and one is what your parents want. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I did that at Virginia Wesleyan. Then college, now it's Virginia Wesleyan University, which just goes to show what happens when time flies. And uh, right, and uh, so what set me on this path is that I, I, I kind of hate to say this, but it's actually the truth. Uh, I started taking biochem classes, and I had always been a science person. And then I ended up having this professor for like two consecutive classes that pretty much killed every desire i had to continue learning about science yeah so, yeah we, we've all had those professors mine this whole this time. right mine was right. in in uh geography now mm, the fact yeah. that it was at 8 a.m in the morning had a lot to do with it but my and and the room that we were in had no windows so it was just a dark Ooh. dismal place to go and then geography like it, it wasn't even like interesting it was like oh look this this mountain rises here and this is flat over here I mean, I, I, I couldn't. I, I just couldn't. <laughs> and, and it's always it's always the monotone affect. Oh, uh, yes. It's like, really? You can't find an iota of passion to yeah. talk about this thing yeah. that you've dedicated your life to? Yeah, uh, that you your dedicated life your life to. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Right. So, so, so this biochemistry professor drove the matter. desire out of you. So I was like, okay, Martine, well, what are we doing? You, you know, you have a theater major. You've got to do something else. And I was like, well, I really love history. So I will be a history and theater double major. And that actually almost worked out for me. I ended up deciding to study abroad, and that actually took me off a little off of 
cares a little bit in terms of finishing the history uh, major. So I ended up being, a, I ended up dropping into a minor so I could get out on time. But I decided I became that person from taking the history classes where I just started doing things like showing up at rehearsals for things with like all of this information I found because uh, I was always that person trying to do the two for thing. Uh-huh. I'm like, okay, well, if I'm in this play, maybe I can just for my history class write a paper about something having to do with the play that I'm in so that I can just kind of do a twofer. There um, you go. There you go. You can do a paper about a play, but it's also about history. So then you can turn exactly. the same paper into two classes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't necessarily always do that, but you know, basically it was a twofer. I was like, I got to find out some stuff about this anyway. So I might as well just go ahead and like do this. Um, and so uh, it was, and what ended up happening is that since I started doing it more and more and more, cause I just kept going down this like, history rabbit hole one day my advisor basically pulled me aside and said the thing that would completely change my life which is martine have you heard of this profession called dramaturgy and i was like no that's supposed to be like martine and her young and her youngest <laughs> no, and uh she explained what it was and i was like that sounds amazing how do i do that and so that basically it's the beginning of the end of my acting career and the beginning of what has become a virtual dramaturgy career for me. So was so, it uh, was it an easy was it easy to let go of the acting? Because I I know for me like in my own life I've pretty much only done acting and singing and then I have this thought like well down the road I could do directing but I haven't committed to that because that means I can't act so I I, I can't uh, I can't say yes to, to directing yet until I finish achieve whatever I need to do acting wise. Was it easy for you to let go of the acting? It actually, I mean, the answer is yes and no, but not for the, the reason that you articulate. So in general, I went to a program that kind of forced all of us to audition for things. And so then I, so then I had to audition as right. part of my degree program. And so, and then I would get cast and stuff. And then I'd be like, ah, oh. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I want to yeah. drama. You wanted the smallest part possible. Exactly. And of yeah. course, it never worked out that way because then, you know, because, just because I wanted the smallest role ever. They're like, here, be pseudolist. And a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, Martine, you're just too good. I think that's what you're basically, <laughs> that's what I hear. You were just too uh, good. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> that's not it. What it was is I was the best singer. So, right. Yeah. There we go. Um, so, yeah. So basically, I started just dramaturging everything that I could get away was dramaturging and it never hurt my feelings when I didn't get cast because I was like, yes, now I can just dramaturg this Right, now you can no focus on the other thing. things anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when it comes to this dramaturgy, it sounds like you've done uh, obviously a lot of Shakespeare. That seems to be one of your bread and butter type of, of works. But you've also done new works as well. So what is the, how do you balance that? Do you have a preference? And what are the challenges of, of both of those segments? It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if I have a preference, partially because what I really just like is a challenge. And so, and they all just come with sets of different challenges. And I like that kind of variety. So I'm, you know, for example, you know, working on something that I affectionately call Shakespeare adjacent. And in some ways it's a new play, a newer play, but then also about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But then I also just got back yesterday from the Great Plains Theater Conference in Omaha, where I dramaturged five shows for five amazing playwrights during the course of a week. 
So, you know, it, like all of it just comes with different sets of uh, needs and desires and wants and things. And I kind of enjoy them both. And they actually require totally different skill sets. Yeah. Because I, it's just to- a totally different skill set to like dramaturg something that, you know, hasn't even had a public performance yet. Yeah. I'd love versus... to hear a little more about what that, what, what that is exactly. What, 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 how do you dramaturg something that is a whole new concept and from someone's head? Ah, uh, so, I mean, a lot of it just depends on where I get dropped into the process. Like with Great Plains, there's already a draft that exists, but it could exist in varying forms. We could have like, you know, something that's pretty early versus something that's almost ready for production. And a lot of it really is about being, you know, essentially an ear and an eye and a consultant for the playwright. Hmm. A lot of times, what it's about for at least for me is asking the playwright what you know asking them questions like you know where did you know why did you feel compelled to write this play what is the story that you're hoping to tell all those kinds of things and really then then just going back and looking and saying okay did they tell the story they set out to tell and then if so are they telling it in the best way that they can yeah Mm -hmm. and so uh you know in general i tend to like plays that are very sort of philosophical or have some like interesting abstract notion at its core. And so like I got to, you know, uh, one play by Emma Stanton called June in the Parade, which is about mental health and mental health uh, uh, issues with mental health and how that, how it can be generational. Right. Um, and so we're sort of watching, uh, you know, several generations of a family struggle with mental illness, but what was really interesting to me about what the player I was trying to do was like, how does one visually represent, you know, a mental illness? Like how, cause she was really interested in thinking through like, how can the world reflect what is happening in these characters' minds? And so, you know, a lot of time was spent having conversations about like what, you know, what kind of imagery, you know, could be used in order to create this uh to to create these kinds of worlds and like what kind of like language is visceral that creates like images in people's minds and then is there value in using a word that creates a particular image but then contrasting that with something completely different that's happening in the world in order to help describe what is happening to these characters in their heads in that moment well it certainly sounds like like, (laughs) i was just gonna say sorry to interrupt but it sounds like you've been able to use a bit of your science background in really dissecting the different parts of of what the the playwright's trying to do and and really dig into it so it 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 almost sounds like you're you're figuring out this equation and what's going to fit best inside that equation yeah, I think what's kind of interesting is that I think, you know, dramaturgs by default have to just be interested in like the whole gamut of like humanity yeah. and the world. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, because, you know, you know, on the other side of that, I was also working on a play by Matthew Papadakaza that was about um, essentially this necklace that uh, has an entity in it. And like whenever someone puts on the necklace, the entity sort of envelops that person and becomes they be- they get to like sort of take over the person. Oh. And like, what does that look like as like different people end up with this necklace? And yeah. like, what happens as this necklace is interacting with the world? 
you know, but then I was also working with something with uh, Frankie Gonzalez on his play, Even Flowers Bloom in Hell Sometimes, and that one's about the prison system. So then all of a sudden I'm like, you know, taking my own personal experiences with family members who've been incarcerated, but then also what I've been reading about incarceration, especially in terms of brown and black bodies. And all of a sudden that information that, you know, who knew that information would be useful in working on someone's new play. And so, I mean, I just got to work on all these like amazing plays um, about essentially the gamut of human experience. And that's, I think what I love the most about working on new plays is that sometimes you just never know what, uh, what conversations will come out of and what sparks will happen in terms of illuminating yet another part of human existence. So yeah, because it, it because it really sounds like that whether you draw from your own personal life, whether you draw from your education, or whether you just draw from your own research, that as you said, you have to be well versed in all of humanity. And right. I, it sounds like that one of the things that you like to focus on are things that deal with 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 a, a sense of social justice, a sense of purpose, and certainly. You know, the name of our show is Well, I'll Never Make It. And one of those issues can be race, gender, identity. Those are things that can that can hold back either actors from making it or casting directors from from casting this person over that person. And so do you see your work as a way to address some of those issues? Always. Because, I mean, I think my job is to question and to poke. And so in the end, I'm going to be looking at plays and saying things like, you know, okay, you know, if you're talking about gender, does it matter what gender? And I mean, and, and hopefully there is, you know, the answer can be anything, but the whole purpose of poking is, you know, could this, could this character be trans? Could this character be, uh, you know, a man or a woman or gender nonconforming? And does what does and how does that affect the story? And if the answer is it doesn't, then I'm always going to be that person that encourages a playwright to say, you know, to say that that right. some, you know, that it doesn't matter. But then if it does, then I'm also that person to to con- you know poke a playwright into being concrete about things when it really does matter. Yeah, making um, sure that everyone knows, no, it is this, and it is only this. Right. It, yeah. Or that it can be. All of these things, right? Or none of these things. Can I tell or you why? Whatever that is. I I, I want to point out why I think what what you and your colleagues in the dramaturg world uh, provide. Why I think it is so important is my birthday was last week, um, and my wife bought me a ticket to go see Carousel on Broadway, um, <clears throat> which we went and saw, and. Uh, Renee Fleming is in the cast, and she, in my opinion, was the third best voice on the stage, and she's Renee Fleming. And that's saying something, yeah. Uh, the, the, the sounds that were coming from that cast were out of this world good. It is, it is one of the most beautiful pieces of theater that I have ever heard, and it had the New York City Ballet doing all of the ballet work in it. It is one of the most visually stunning pieces of work I've ever seen on a stage. It is, it is as good as anything that is in the Met. It is, <laughs> uh, it really was so stunningly beautiful. And it is dealing with 
a ton of Me Too issues. It's dealing with uh, uh, violence towards women and uh, women's responses to that and men's responses to that uh, and the morality of all of that. But it's dealing with it in a 1940s attitude. And Mm. is it the right thing for us to do? Or is there a way to bring a dramaturg in to to help deliver an adjusted message, to to help it make more sense today? Um, And it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I think dramaturgically, like one of the main questions we always ask is why this play, why this play now? Yeah. Which then, you know, if you start to think about it, it makes you start to wonder, like, is, is the reason why? Because someone feels like we need to go, you know, back to an era in which this is okay? Or, you know, back to an era at least when, which we can watch something like that and, like, everyone was just like, oh, I guess that's just how the world works? Or are they trying to make some sort of comment? Are they pushing up against something? And I think the answer is, you know, unless you were a fly on that wall, we'll actually never really know. Yeah. But I think that's part of the reason why, like, go back to there always needs to be someone in the room committing acts of dramaturgy. Yeah. Whether or not that person is a dramaturg or not, like, you know, I would always hope and advocate that there be someone in there, but you know, bottom line I'm advocating for someone to be happy you know, to poke at it, to ask these questions that you're asking. Like hopefully someone was sitting there asking these same questions. And if not, then I hope that in the future they will be asking these questions. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And this is a perfect, because I sat down and talked with a, a member of that cast in one of our previous episodes. So it was a chance to, I asked them that same question about, you know, how do you bring a show that's 70 years old into 2018? Do you keep it 70 years old or do you try to make it 2018? So yeah, they, they basically tried to blend both to where it would, it would make sense now, but still being true to that time. So without changing too much, it wasn't terrible. It just it, like I don't I don't want to overstate what it was. It's just it, you couldn't walk out of there not living yourself and having just received this message from the show. Right. Right. So to to kind of veer off in a in a different direction with with, with all the work that you've done. I mean, because you 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 do work as as you just stated all over the country. A lot of it in Oregon, and then you work here in New York and, and everywhere in between. Is it tough to find work sometimes? How do you keep going and make it? That is a good question. Um, so I'm going to own this and all the sort of privilege that comes with this statement, but at the moment I'm not having a hard time finding work. Which is a great um, place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Man, own and, it. and it's so interesting how those like ebbs and flows, because if you had talked to me back in 2012, I've been like, oh, I can't find a dramaturgical group to save my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then now I seem to have an overabundance. And, you know, as these things come in cycles, I expect, you know, at some point I will be yesterday's news. And then, like, three years from now, maybe hopefully I'll have an uptick. I don't know. We'll yeah. see what happens. But I think the thing that's really interesting, I think, about the world of dramaturgy is that it's a combo of – it's really about visibility – I think in some respects, because um, in general, like I get a lot of the work that I've gotten by the fact that people know I exist. So, you know, best case I can even like, you know, not to keep harping on the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, but in some ways it's like the prime example. Like in the, I got my first gig at Oregon Shakes because during my PhD program, I had a professor who had just come off of an acting contract 
at Oregon Shakes as I was entering my program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And, you know, he was like, you're a dramaturg? You should, you know, you should meet Louis Dapper, who at the time was the director of literary management and dramaturgy, and, and, and basically sort of set it up for us to have a conversation and talk. And it was one of those things where now that she, someone knew I existed, yeah. Um, it, you know, there was like a, an opportunity that opened up in a way, you know, and I had gotten some work like, you know, during my master's degree program at Catholic U and DC and things like that. But sort of that, you know, especially being at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, all of a sudden there were a whole lot more people who knew that I existed because I was working in the literary office. And so I was meeting playwrights and I was meeting directors and I was meeting, meeting all these people that I would have, you know, not necessarily been exposed to, you know, for that reason, I kind of get requested back time and time again by the, either the same director or playwright. Um, and that's cool because I love the people that I work with. So it's, it's awesome. Well, Martine, <laughs> we, we have, we have a massive following of this podcast and <laughs> tens and tens of people. And I would love for them. Tens and tens of people. <laughs> I would love, I would love for both of them to be able to uh, get in contact with you if they needed uh, a dramaturg for their project. Um, how might one find Martine out in the world uh, that isn't just like your personal phone number? Like, do you have a, a, a website or a, some, something other than just sort of creepily Googling like Patrick does? Yeah. Well, for, like for a bit of irony, like one of the things that I had been on my ever growing to-do list is to get my website back up and running but unfortunately and this is not a bad thing it's just i've actually been so busy that i haven't had time to do that in in my google search i discovered that so i'm just letting <laughs> you know because <laughs> yeah. I, I i went to the website that has your full name and i was like oh she's still she's still working on this so but yeah but believe me i get it i just finished mine within the last year with all that you have going on i get how hard it is but but right. are, are you on social media or other places that people can I find am. you? i am i am easily found uh on the twitters as i affectionately call it yes my handle is at martine key so at m-a-r-t-i-n-e-k-e-i but then there are other ways to get a hold of me like you can find me through the lmda website Mm -hmm. So if you go to lmda.org, there's actually a find a dramaturg feature. Oh, perfect. Um, oh, yeah. lovely. So if you're actually just looking for a dramaturg, um, you can, you know, any, you know, it doesn't necessarily just have to be me there. Like if you want someone who's close by to wherever you are, like I would definitely recommend that as a tool. And this to is why you're president-elect, right? Yeah, is, yeah. Uh, exactly. You're, 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 you're about to cut other in. people work right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because then you can make them update your website and make sure that you're all good to go. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's so, so funny because I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm like, I should actually just see if I can get, I'm going to like see if I can pay one of my students just to like finish my website. Hey, like, yeah. is, is, isn't that, isn't that what internships are for? It's, it's free labor, right? Well, you know, to be honest, I'm very much about paying people for their labor. You my know what? Know that that's like one act, of my things. Yeah. As an actor, we, we love those people who, who their moral fiber won't let them not pay someone. We love those people. Exactly. So I, 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 I am not good at, asking people to do anything for me for free <laughs> <laughs> so so before we go i have i have this these five words to say to you and i want you to just talk about it bento boxes and collard greens <laughs> yeah Dewey's giving me a face like what the hell so 
Yeah, so please explain what bento boxes and collard greens is. Fair enough. It is a project that has been both ongoing and sidelined and brought back up and sidelined, partially because my collaborators live everywhere. Bento boxes and collard greens is hopefully what will be one day a project in which there is like an exploration of identity through food. Okay. And I like it will that. be a, yeah, it'll be kind of an immersive experience, but not like a traditionally immersive ex- experience. Essentially what it is is that it will be us inviting people into a kitchen and sort of talking through and making things with people and talk, and, and it's about how do we craft our sense of selves through the food that we eat that our families prepare, that we serve to others, um, and things like that. And so uh, bento boxes, that part comes from the um, my one of my collaborators who happens to be Japanese, and and the, and the collard greens comes from me since I'm African American. <laughs> and so like one of the rites of passages is learning how to make collard greens. Because right. you can't just eat anybody's collard greens. No, I, I'm, so, I'm from the South, and so collard greens is a delicacy there. So I, I, exactly. I, I totally get it. you can't just it. eat. Yeah. Yeah, you can't just eat anybody's collard greens. They have to be made mm-hmm. in a particular way. That's or true. they're it's not about being greens. from Missouri. something else masquerading. Everybody thinks that Missouri is a Southern state. We didn't have grits, and we didn't have collard greens. Like, I, I know they existed, but they weren't, like, you couldn't get them at a restaurant. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing that was around. Yeah. That's why That's why I will never allow for anyone to say that Missouri is a southern state. Well, I, I'm curious. What are the delicacies of Missouri? Tell me. Oh, yeah. There we got go. many. Kansas City. Kansas City has oh, its barbecue. barbecue the barbecue, which is, yeah. That's a part of the state that I'm from. But but uh, there, there, was a, there was a restaurant in um, St. Joe, Missouri, which is where I was born, that was called the, um, the Stockyards. And you could go in the morning and you could pick the cow. And then there was like a train ride you could go on. And then when you came back to the restaurant later, you could then eat part of that cow. Um, oh, that gosh. Restaurant. That both sounds wow. amazing and frightening. Yeah. Like, oh, it, <laughs> it, is a, it is a part of the world where yeah. you are definitely connected You're to t- the yeah. food chain. Yes, yes. You, right. you, you're, you're petting it one day and eating it the next. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's oh, how my it goodness. But, uh, but you know what? I think that's a great idea. For, for whether this is going to be a book, it, it could be a TV show. I mean, I, I could see it going in several different directions because whenever I've been on tour, how I remember the places that I've been are the restaurants that I went to. And I went, oh, that's right. At that city, I had that great barbecue. Or at that city, oh my gosh, the, the breakfast was so good. Or whatever the, the dish is. And so I think where we're from, just within the states, the 50 states of America, that, that's its own little Petri dish of, of, of different things. But if you go out into the world, it does say a lot about the, uh, the cultures themselves. And so I, I actually love, love that idea. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that we'll actually be able to get it together one day. Part of it is just about getting everyone in the same. And of course, everyone, we came up with this idea partially because we wanted to do something fun and different and we none of us had anything going on and i think (laughs) that is always the immediate kiss of death to any project because the moment you're all like oh we should do this thing because we're all not busy right now what what is the next inevitable thing to happen everyone get busy busy. yeah (laughs) well look if you you know what we we talked earlier in the show uh, before you came on martine 
uh, Patrick is uh, talking about being in a slump, you need to get yourself uh, set up in some like projects that you just know are going to be great. Right, right, right. Some like long, deep, heavy project, like Mission Impossible. Right. Like if you choose to accept it, then that's all you need. Then, then that's I'll, all you I'll need, and then you're going to start booking Love right it. away. Exactly. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's exactly how it works. Like the moment you're like, you know what? I've got some time. I'm going to do this thing. Like it's going to be great. And then you know, like there are so many books that I'm like, oh. You know, I, I'll totally read this when I have time. And of course, because now now it's just become this funny thing where there's a stack of books and it's just piling up of things that Martina's been needing to read. Because every time I come <laughs> of out of my mouth with, oh, I've got like a free week. I'll read this. It's like, uh-uh. Inevitable. No more right. free. All right. All right. So right. before we go, before we go, since we're on this topic, let's all name, like if we had each other over and like, hey, come on over. I'm going to cook you fill in the blank. For me, my dish, my famous dish, yes, is my four bean chili. It's a, it's, it, it's my delicacy. Now the four beans are garbanzo. That's my specialty. The garbanzo, kidney, the pinto, and the black. So those are the four beans mm. in my chili. So, Martine, what is your dish that you're bringing someone over? Here's what you're gonna make them. Uh, so this is actually a dish that I used to make in grad school, and every time people knew I was making it, they would just come flocking over. So I never even got to invite people. They would just smell it and come over. They knew. Um, I, like, <laughs> so I would make this sort of lemon, honey, ginger, chicken. Ooh. And so so it's basically like chicken, like tenders, but you kind of cut them up into bits so that they're more like, you know, like nugget-sized type pieces. You bread them and like, and you fry them and then like, you yes. put them in a pan, and then, like, what you'll do is grab, like, some lemon, uh, some ginger, Whoa. and some honey, and create a sauce, and then drizzle it over that, Stop and then bake that. it. Oh, and then, oh, yeah. It's good, yeah. though. But you That's... gotta make sure you have, like, chunks of ginger in it. Now, now, now what, like, you gotta get how that do you, how, of... yeah, of course, how do you batter them? Is it, like, just regular flour, or do you use something else to batter it with? I use flour that's seasoned with, um, uh, uh, Old Bay. So, Old Bay, yeah. with Old all Bay right. skin. All right, all right, Dewey. What is your famous dish? I mean, the thing is, is that my famous dish is my mother's famous dish. That's okay. Pass down. Um, yeah. so it's it's just some roast beef. Uh, but is it just roast beef? No, well, of course it's not. Yeah. Um, it, it's roast beef that is that is cooked to absolute oblivion. It, it's. It's essentially <laughs> think of it think of it like a pulled like a pulled pork, right? So it's been like just cooked forever mm-hmm. and it's just this like shredded meat at the end of the day, but it's roast beef in this like this like almost thin gravy on white bread. Yeah. And it it like just thinking about it it doesn't sound all that appetizing, but there is nothing on this planet better than than just that that it's you know there's some onions and there's some other stuff in it, but it's like but the simplicity of the that. simplicity yeah. of that meal, it, it is it is my favorite thing in the world. And if I'm inviting someone over, I don't I actually not sure I care if they like it or not. I'm just <laughs> I'm, because no, I can't you're just cook like it, it for myself. It's too much food because you oh. can't like it's all that you, you get a roast and the, it's a whole. Oh thing. no! Oh no! When I when I make my chili, I only know how to make it big. Yeah. I I have no idea how to make it just for two people. It's it's minimum right. fifteen people. I only know exactly. like I know the big recipe. Yeah. That's it. So I just try to invite a couple of people over so that there's still plenty of leftovers, but I don't feel like I've just made like three months worth of food for myself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Gotcha. All right. Well, now I am starving, so I'm going to go get myself something to eat. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Martine, for yeah, Thank for you joining so much, us. Martine. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you. And, yeah, uh, this congrats on this life in the theater that you've built for yourself. It's It sounds thank awesome. You. Yeah, because yeah, it, it, it just sounds like you're having so much fun and you're able to like really i mean it's never the same day twice right i mean you you, you it constantly it's never the same and oh. you're able to utilize this thing that you are this like uh, you know this this obvious brain that you have and uh and this sort of love for the theater i don't know it's it's a really cool thing that you've got and uh i'm i'm really happy that you were able to share it with us today thank you i'm a very lucky girl and i will own that i get to do what i love every day well, well, thank you for, for joining us and for making us lucky to have you here. And for Dewey and I, everyone, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. The Why I'll Never Make It podcast is hosted by Dewey Cadell and Patrick Oliver-Jones and produced by Dylan Adams. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, where you can leave us amazing reviews, of course. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Why I'll Never Make It or via email at whyillnevermakeit at gmail.com. Lastly, we now have a website, whyillnevermakeit.com. You know, Dewey, it certainly sounds like we're making it. I'm not making it. I will never make it.